Daniel Klein, the great author, writer, philosopher. Uh, I'm not a, any of the above. I've had uh, several best-selling books. One of them, Plato and a Platypus Walk Into a Bar, who I, I, I wrote with my best friend, who has been uh, my best friend since we arrived as freshmen at Harvard in 1957. So we've wow. been best friends uh, for all those years. He was uh, Tom Cathcart. He was a pre-divinity student. And uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I knew that I probably didn't want to go to graduate school and that I most certainly didn't want to work for a a boss. Uh, I mean, I, I one of my sharpest memories of my childhood and uh and my father coming home after work and being in a bad mood almost all the time and that was because his boss a guy from russia had uh ludwig his name was and uh he would humiliate him he was a chemist and he would humiliate him in the laboratory and, and he'd grumble and grumble and my little six-year-old brain says, make a note, don't work for anybody, Russian or not. So um, I discovered I could make a living uh, writing and being funny. And yeah. um, so I worked in TV and I wrote for um, comedians, you know, special material, performance material. And that was a lot of fun. And I had a certain advantage at the time because at that time, we're talking the 19, I got out of Harvard in 1961. So at that time, we were just beginning to have uh, black performers on TV for everybody. Godfrey Cambridge, uh, Philip Wilson, he was my favorite. He was a naturally uh, funny guy. And, but they didn't yet have any black writers. That just hadn't been anything that African-Americans got into. Well, I went to a high school that was about 25, 30% African-American, and they sent it almost all eight together in the high school cafeteria in a suburb. And um, I begged them to let me sit with them. Uh, because they told jokes nonstop. Yeah. And they were betting. You know, the only other jokes I knew really well were uh, Jewish and Irish. And here I'm getting this mother load of, 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 of jokes, mostly put down jokes. Uh, called, it was called Doing the Dozens. Your mama is so fat, it takes three <laughs> driver's license to get her picture on it. You know? <laughs> And one after another. So when Flip Wilson said, do you have anybody who can help me write my material? And they said, well, we got this guy Klein, and he seems to de know the, uh, the, black, the black repertoire. Uh -huh. And I did. And it's not that different from uh, Jewish in many ways. It's a lot of putting down of yourself and putting down stereotypes of yourself. And... Uh, and um, a lot of cultures don't do that. Like my wife was from Holland. They don't make fun of being Dutch. And right. they should. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, but you know, that, that, that just goes against the, the Protestant ethic. But uh, Jews and blacks did. And interestingly, the Irish did. You want me to tell you one of my favorite Irish jokes? Sure. Uh, uh, so there's... This it's in, in Dublin. This guy has got an appointment for a uh, just the dream job of his life, and it's at precisely two o'clock, and he can't find a parking place. So he crosses his mouth south up uh, and, and and looks up to 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 the sky, and he says, "Jesus, if you find me a parking space right now." I will go to mass every day for the rest of my life. And at that instant, a, Paul calls, a car pulls out right in front of them, and he can park. And he looks up to heaven. He says, never mind. 
<laughs> this is what I wanted to ask you, Danny, is uh, you're, you're incredibly funny. And uh, I, I'm very curious if you as a child, were, did you, were you were you funny as a kid? You know, is that something you developed, like you said, when you when you were in high school there with with uh, with uh, talking with African-Americans who were you know, then recommended you later? And is that something you developed over that time? And then you discovered that yeah. you were funny and you could use that humor in your writing? I guess so. It, it, it seemed to pay off. I grew up as the dumb kid in the family. Uh, my father was a scientist. He worked on the Manhattan Project. You know, he was big. Oh. Oh. And uh, my brother was, who was older than I am, was going the same way: science and uh, uh, math. And I showed. Uh, very little aptitude or interest in either of those things. Uh, and I like to tell stories. And the funnier, the better. And, and the wildest. I mean, I would come home and my mother would say, why are you late from school? And I'd make up some incredible story about, you know, there were some cowboys in town and I was trying <laughs> to save this woman. And, and she says, yeah, just tell me the truth. And he says, well, you know, I was there. I wish I'd taken a picture. And then when my first <laughs> book came out, uh, which wasn't funny, it was a medical thriller. Um, and it became a bestseller. It was called uh, Embryo. Uh, it was about kind of thought, uh, saw the beginnings of in vitro fertilization in, in humans. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of a wild, futuristic uh, book. And uh, my mother said she was sort of proud of me, but I hadn't done the right thing. I hadn't become uh, a lawyer or a doctor. Uh, you know, the joke, the joke of growing up was why, why does a Jewish boy become a lawyer? And that's because he's afraid of blood. <laughs> I don't have to explain it, I guess. But, yeah. but, but when, when when my book came out, the embryo, and uh, it climbed the charts, my mother said to me, half joking, but half not joking, she says, I always knew that you'd make a, a living being a liar. <laughs> she saw fiction as lies. Right. Uh, huh. And... Uh, well this is fascinating, Danny, because, you know, uh, obviously being a being a writer and having the path that you've had, not, not everybody gets to become a successful writer and not everybody has not just one, but multiple books that end up being bestsellers. Um, it seems to me like you have a very uh, uh, great ability to be creative and sort of connect dots that maybe other people wouldn't connect. Um you know, did you ever pursue any uh, other arts other than writing in itself? Did you enjoy um, other art forms? No, I've had hobbies. Uh, I, I liked it, you know, when I was uh, younger to appear in amateur dr dramatics. And at Harvard, I did a couple of those. That was a great way to meet uh, women, uh, being in those plays. And, um, and, and, uh, I still like to scotch, and the regret I have is, I, I think I would have been a pretty good cartoonist if I could draw cartoon figures. I mean, I can do kind of caricatures and pictures of friends, but you know, little busts of friends. But uh, I, I never studied it, you know, and applied myself to it. I think that that is something I could have done. Yeah. Um, but and at one time, somebody. Uh, and the press asked me, uh, oh, fine, uh, you're, uh, uh, you, you have the ability to think outside of the box. How do you account for that? And I said spontaneously, and it kind of woke me up that it was true. And I said, that's because I can't see the box. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, my brother could, my father did. I couldn't see the box. So what came out of my mouth was, uh, badly informed, but, um, funny. <laughs> right. But also, uh, also 
in a way, you know, what I've enjoyed about your writing, um, whether it's every every time I find the meaning of life, they change it, or travels with Epicurus, you know, you seem to you seem to use humor uh, to actually tell very um, intimate truths about philosophy and real life. And so, although it might not be in, in the box, you you know, but and it it is creative thinking, but it's also I think why it resonates with me and maybe some of the other readers is just because it you hit it on the head uh, just from a different angle, you know? And so uh, I was curious about, um, yeah, yeah, just how, how, how did you get interested in philosophy? Uh, you know, where did that come from? Oh, uh, that's a good question. You know, I'm at that stage of life where I, uh, a lot of octogenarians I know, they're trying to put together some kind of narrative of, uh, of of their lives that makes sense. Some of them want to have memoirs published and stuff like that. I have no interest in that, but because uh, um, I don't think anybody reads memoirs except if they uh, have a gun pointed to their head or something. <laughs> no, everybody wants to write their memoirs, but nobody wants to read them for one reason. It's just like they serve no purpose. If they last a generation, you know, I have a granddaughter. Uh, you know, she'd look for two minutes and say, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. He used to make jokes, you know. So when you you went when you went to Harvard and probably all your all, all your colleagues were becoming, I don't know, lawyers and, and doctors, like you said, and things like that. And you've maybe felt this pressure from from your family. Uh, like Tori was asking, what made you what what guided you to philosophy? Uh, was there someone um yeah, how did that happen? Well, thanks for asking that because I wondered about that too, and that is, I, I uh, you know, I, I came to Harvard. I thought for about one term that I should be a good boy and be pre-law, and uh, and I hated it. I took my my pre-law class from Henry Kissinger. What really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, he was government one A. Oh. Is it okay if I just free associate? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I, whatever you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. No, it's uh, because I have a Kissinger story. He he just died, and but yeah. a few months before he died, I was Tom and I were at yeah. a um, you know a, a book event, and he had a new book out, and they often invite us, uh, you know, because we'll amuse the visitors. And Tom said, "You took a, you took government from Kissinger, didn't you?" And I, I said, yeah, "Yeah." And he said, "What'd you get?" I said, "I got a B minus." He says, "Oh, you should have done better than that. Go up to him and tell him you want to." You know, so this is six, 60 years later, and ask him uh, to raise your grade. <laughs> so you know, I'm K Klein and. Kissinger is right next to me, so I go up to yeah. him, and he's in a wheelchair, and has a big head, and he's got two amanuensis who are taking care of him. And I said, I took government one from you in 1957. I said, you gave me a B minus. I think I deserved a B. Would you mind changing it now? <laughs> and, and this humorless guy laughed so hard. <laughs> that they had to put him back up in in his uh, in his wheelchair, and I had a, a tutor my freshman year, who's you know who said, uh, you know, uh, Danny, you don't strike me as a lawyer. I, I know that's why you're pre-law. He says I will give you uh, what's it called shadow. You can shadow. A Boston lawyer in Boston, which is just across the river from Cambridge, uh, and uh, see what they do, and if you fit. Well, I was screaming by lunch. I mean, it was just so pedantic, and 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 you had to defend things that you thought were not true, and uh, and I said, no, no, not for me. Cancel that course, and then Tom. <laughs> I met Tom, 
and he was going to divinity school. He was pre-divinity. And he told me why he was studying philosophy. And I said, oh, my God, that's something I've been interested in, you know, ever since I've been a teenager. And I didn't know there was a word for it or a system of study for it. It was not something talked about at, at, at our dinner table. And um, and I said, and he said, take this course. It was called Humanities Five, And I just fell in love. I fell in love with all of it, uh, all the big questions. And I realized that in some inarticulate way, these had been bothering me and I've been wondering about them. And I didn't know that there were, you know, people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Kierkegaard and, and uh, John Stuart Mill. I had no idea that they thought about these things and written about them. And, and I ate it up. And most of it, I was pretty good. I had a natural affinity for it. There was one course I had to drop. It was about the Kant's critique, critique of pure reason, and it was just too hard for me. Mm. I mean, Tom got it, but my, you know, my some people are smarter than others, and he was smarter than I was, and he tried to explain it to me, and I said, you know, it's just a limit. I can't, I can't do it. Um, but the basic stuff, the general idea of what philosophy asks and what motivates people to ask it, their fear, their curiosity. Yeah. And, I, and at some point, I realized that the same things that motivate people to study philosophy uh, are the same things that people gravitate to jokes. I mean, I, I just saw it. What, jokes, in as much as they transcend or tend to neutralize uh, the, our biggest anxieties in life, which everybody seems to agree are sex and death. The, those are the big questions of philosophy. And they're also the big, you know, they're, they're what jokes are about. So already back then, I, I saw the connection and so did Tom. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the rest of our classmates were more serious than we were. And we're studying for their graduate school, either professional school, law, medicine, or, or uh, you know, some, like I had one guy. Uh, I could never understand this. He studied uh, um, the history of science in Spain. The history of science in Spain. Who, I, I, I didn't get it, you know. And he went on had a big career as a professor of history and science in Spain. I knew that wasn't for me. As I said, I didn't want to work for a boss. And I was good at telling whoppers and stories. And I, although my memory for, say, Kant is not very good, I remember every joke I've ever been told. Even now, or at the beginning of dementia, I remember maybe 500 more jokes. You know. ah. And I know one other guy, he's a cartoonist, and people sit us down and say, okay, give us a joke about tricycles. And we both can go, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, I can't think of any right now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it's the one thing that's stuck. Huh. I can't remember <laughs> half the names of half the women I slept with, but I can remember every joke I've heard. <laughs> Well, you know, this is uh, Plato and a Platypus walk into a bar. I mean, that what's beautiful about that book is just chapter by chapter, you you do take these big questions of philosophy and apply jokes to them. And I thought that was quite brilliant how you did that. Um, you know, with with your relationship with Tom, obviously, to write a book with him, what is it about your relationship with him that um, that you enjoy so much? I think friendship is such a big part of of living and it's such a meaningful part of our our sort of uh time here how, how would you describe uh the relationship with him and why did you guys get along so well why do you think that that was such a a big part of your life it's a, a good question because he's been uh, a, a big part of my life now for over 60 years 
And um, well, first of all, we never felt, as many people did in that period, I don't know whether it's true in your generation, that their friendships were marred by competitiveness. That, 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 that you know, you didn't have to dig too deep to see that one was trying to be more likable, smarter, something than the other. We just never had that. We just, it, we, we never had that. And, um, you know, we, and, and we weren't, you know, getting into divinity school is easy. They're always begging people to do it. So he didn't have to get good marks. And I wasn't going to do anything. So I didn't have to uh, get good marks. And, and we used to do something called cutting a show. Uh, those uh, recording machines, reel to reel recording machines had come out, and I bought a used one. And we used to do something, you know, we're 18, 17. Uh, we would do improvisations and record them. And we'd do it every night after uh, supper. And we just got funnier and funnier, and we'd play them for friends. And, uh, and we weren't in, in uh, competition. Uh, we knew how to set up a joke for the other one, which is very important. You know, you touch it, and then he takes it. Uh, it's like a sport, in a way. And um, and we liked it. And we'd... Uh, and he, well, he went to divinity school, but we kept up the friendship. He he kept dropping out of uh, divinity school because he said, I didn't hear the call. And, and of course, I'd have to tease him about that. He, he dropped out of three divinity schools, University of Chicago, uh, Andover Newton, I don't know, big ones. And there was a song that was popular there. Uh, from a movie before your time, and the, and the song was "Beauty School Dropout," and what was the name of that movie? It was John Travolta. Anyhow, so I used to sing him uh, "Divinity School Dropout," <laughs> uh, but you know he still goes to church and, and says I don't believe it. Uh, he he walks a, a funny line. Oh, and I found something convenient. That's not, it's a little disrespectful, but something about being Jewish that's nice. Uh, and and that is, um, what do you do? I've, you know, my friends are dying, and most of my friends are not Jewish. And uh, and they all have, and and they're also not religious. A lot of them don't believe in things. And afterlife and God, you know, and and I, um, I I thought you know what's convenient about being Jewish, even though I don't go to synagogue, is it tells you what to do. Right. Okay, you, somebody's dead, you put them in the ground the same day. You mm -hmm. say this prayer; it's called Kaddish. You put a stone on the uh, on the uh, monument, uh, and then you have something to eat. Uh, and uh, and I thought, you know, it's nice to know what to do. So because I asked my friends, what are you going to do when you're dying? They're going to die any minute now. And they said, oh, I haven't thought about it. Maybe I'll be cremated. I said, I know exactly, and I know exactly where, you know, hmm. uh, next next to my wife in uh, the Jewish cemetery. Hmm. You know, Can I tell you something nice about yeah. my wife? Of course. She, she was a wonderful. Her parents were alive during the occupation of Holland, and uh, and they were what was later known as righteous Gentiles, like Anne, Anne Frank took care of people in hiding, uh, and both uh, her mother and father uh, were uh, were that way, and. Uh, Oh, really decimated the Jewish population of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Literally decimated. It was down to ten percent of what it had been before. And um, and my, my father-in-law, who I adored, uh, it was something he talked about at his dinner table. 
as being the most important part of his life. And both his daughters married Jews. Uh, my wife, who was Dutch Reformed, and, and her sister, she married an Israeli. Uh, and then my daughter, uh, for some reason, embraced it. Uh, she doesn't look very Jewish anymore, the Dutch, but uh, she identifies strongly and studied Talmud, and uh, and she very much wants to do the burial in the traditional way. Hmm. It's good for practical stuff. Religion is good for practical stuff. Hmm. Uh, for um, existential, uh, not so good. <laughs> but... No, but you're you're right. There's uh there's there's a lot of value in and you know most most religions as you can you know think about the the practicalities. But um, yeah, I think I think what I'm curious about, especially with you know what you write about, is um, sort of the the process of getting older. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know I have grandparents in the uh, 87, 92. Um, yeah, I'm up there. And um, yeah. they, they say the same thing, you know, a lot of their friends are starting to get to a, a point where maybe they're getting sick and stuff like this. I, I found, uh, Danny, when you're talking about slowing down as you're aging, um, you know, Travels of Epicurus is just such a great book. Uh, and I think everyone would agree. We're, we're curious about, you know, what, what, when do you start noticing that that way of life of slowing down is actually there's uh much to be gained from that as opposed to you know dreading it as opposed to dreading it and you know having a difficult time with it uh, how how did you learn to embrace that so well just tell me again what it is that i'm embracing oh just this idea of uh it seems like when you when you went to greece and you you learned to slow down and kind of enjoy aging as opposed to looking at it you know, from such a negative perspective. Is that, yeah. is that accurate or is that, is that yeah, fair? No, to say? I think that's quite well put. Uh, I am, a, I have a natural affinity for uh, Greek culture, both the ancient, you know, I love Plato. I love Socrates. I loved Epicurus and uh, uh, some of the Stoics. And so they, again, it was just, Oh God, you're saying what I'm, but I've been wondering about all these years, and you're living the way the way I envisioned. Uh, uh, you know, they're very into it. I mean, the thing that I really noticed, and I think I mentioned it in Travels with Epicurus, which I think is my best book, and that is that, that friends can sit together in silence without getting nervous. Mm -hmm. And yet with American friends, if I just feel reflective or somebody said something that I want to think about, there's always somebody who says, oh, did I tell you I saw Ralph the other day? And they, uh, <laughs> uh, it makes it makes them nervous that, uh, you know, that there's silence, you know, a void that needs to be filled. Oh, can I tell you, when we're talking about religion, uh, um, a big topic that Tom and I wanted to tackle in uh, Plato and a Platypus Walk Into Our a Bar, and another book that did very well. Uh, uh, we decided to make it a series, so it, it was, I can't forget, but it was about death. Heidegger and a hippo walked through the, uh, the Golden Gate. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of, and the idea, you know, Freud's thought, I think, was uh, right is that we joke about the things that make us most nervous make us most anxious sex and death mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh and and uh and that also uh you know and we seek to transcend you know feeling awful about death and mortality uh, and that sometimes humor will help. God knows philosophy doesn't help. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and we found in, in uh, you know, all those, those jokes I knew, and, and sometimes I'd 
you know, search. We wrote the book before searching the web was that easy or available. So it was just what we knew and who we interviewed and stuff. But one of my favorite faith versus reason jokes, which is a fundamental category, uh, and that is uh, an old guy uh, goes for a walk, and he trips, and he falls down a well. And he's falling and falling, and finally he reaches out, and he gets a hold of this kind of spindly ivy, and he hangs on to it, and he looks below, and there's about a, a half a mile beneath him that ends in the, a choppy, dirty water. And he looks up, and he says, is anybody up there? Silence. He says, is anybody up there? Is anybody? Yes, I am the Lord, your God, and I will tell you what to do. Let go of the vine. Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> I, I, I think I think that's a, a story about faith. It's as good as Kierkegaard. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, Danny. Uh, what one the, the reason Tori and I, as friends, we talk uh, a lot about how people spend their time. We we like to learn from people like yourself. What they've learned uh, is valuable for them because we all have this finite time. And in in travels with Epicurus, you do talk about this uh, idea of aging and what 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 you value and how that changes. And um, yeah, you were talking about a little bit about, for example, how people in Greece live, and uh, and I think you lived in in France a bit, and and uh, maybe other places. What what sort of what sort of things have you learned that you yourself adopt in your own life or have adopted in your life that have that you've learned, let's say, from the Greek philosophers or from the modern day Greeks, um, how you live your everyday life? Are there certain things you do now that you've learned from them that you think are valuable lessons of how we should spend our days? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the one that became sort of the bumper sticker in the 60s and 70s, uh, be here now, uh, yeah. and which I call be here now and then. Uh, I think that is kind of the secret for me uh, that it is finite, you know, no matter how many, for me at least, you know, uh, when it's over, lights go out and that's it. You know, there's there's no future in death. And, uh, um, and so the best you can do, and it's rich, is to uh, be sensitive to what is going on right now. And this doesn't, like, I have friends who have bucket lists, you know, I have to see Canada before I die, you know. And, and uh, I need to sleep with a movie star before I die. So the, 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 I don't have a bucket list like like uh, that. and But, or I do in a different sense, and that is I want to be as, as uh, conscious of life as as I can before I die. And I also want to, uh, and this is where I, I turn into Oprah or something, and that is that uh, I, I get sentimental. I also, and I think about it a lot, you know, I'm sitting here alone in the little house, uh, and, and I, I think that uh, love is important mm -hmm. and uh, super important. And I keep coming back. There was a song that was popular. Um, um, your 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 parents might. How old are your parents? My 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 mom is in her sixties, mid sixties, and my grandparents are yeah upper upper eighties. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, they and, and they from Canada. Uh yeah, for the most part, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. Because there was a song that was popular by Nat King Cole. Do you remember him? He was a Love Nat King Cole. 
uh, popular kinder, and he sang a song called uh, Nature Boy. Hmm. Would you like me to sing it for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll sing you the important part. There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy, and though he traveled very far near this, he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And it's that kodo, and be loved in return, that, that grabs me. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a definition of unconditional love, you know, uh, which I feel for maybe two people, my daughter and Tom. You know, no matter what they were to do now, I would love them. Even if they were to betray me, I would love them. And, um, I don't know. So, you know, after studying philosophy at Harvard and at the Sorbonne for a while, and at the New School for Research, you know, social research for a while, it comes down to a, a ballad by Nat King Cole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I wish I had a girlfriend now, but, uh, I have had a few. It's, yeah, I'm going to get sentimental, but after having been happily married to this young Dutch woman and having a child with her, uh, you know, I get late, but it ain't the same, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm not very good at that either. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't age well. <laughs> <laughs> some things do, some things don't, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> With uh, that's that's beautiful, Danny. Uh, um, you want to tell us how how did you meet uh your wife? How how did the two of you get together? I mean, um, oh, Fra Franca. Yeah. Uh, uh, she was. Uh, she had gone to uh, the Royal School of Journalism in The Hague, and she'd been a, a uh, an exchange student in America. Uh, in a senior year of high school and uh, was in Schenectady and they put her with another minister's family here. It was an African-American family in, in Schenectady and she just loved it. She loved America. She loved the openness. Uh, it was the height of the civil rights movement and so because she, she's with a black family, she's thrust right into it. And um, and she liked the the, the the chaos of American life because it's very orderly. The Protestant ethic is very orderly living. It drives me nuts, you know. I mean, people stop for red lights. You know, what's that about? And, <laughs> and uh, uh, um, but but she came here and she became a. Uh, a foreign correspondent, actually for a, a Christian magazine, but then little by little, the Dutch media uh, started asking her to do uh, radio shows, articles, little videos about um, American life, and and she had an incredible ability and kind of an instinct for popular culture. Uh, it was kind of like modern day de Tocqueville or something. You know, she could spot something that was coming. Like she saw break dancing in the streets, and she said, "This is going to be big. Oh, this, is, oh. this is 1960 something or 70 something." And so she filmed it. You know, she got her crew. She filmed it. They put it on Dutch television. The next day, they were break. Uh, break dancing, white Dutch kids uh, in the Dom Square, you know, in wow. the center of Amsterdam. It, that, that's how fast it grew and how acute her senses of, oh. of, uh, of, of, of what has universal appeal. Uh, mm. And she predicted a lot of things. I mean, she, she, she predicted this uh, long before the uh, the idea of a Trump-like figure taking over. Mm. She predicted it. 
Well, she knew all about the the origins of the Second World War from her parents, uh, occupied country. And, uh, yeah, she was talking about it. And I said, don't be silly. This is America. Yeah. What sort of things like this did you did you learn from your wife? Do you think that that you that you still carry in terms of how you live, how live how you live? Oh, yeah, there's <laughs> a, a funny one, uh, and that is, I think, because of my questioning nature, which was attracted to philosophy, I had trouble finding it. Satisfying moral choices. Should I do this? Should I do that? Is it right to do this? The right to do that. Should I take this job, even though these people are not good and stuff like that? And I could have 15 to 100 reasons on either side of the divide. Mm -hmm. And I talk it over with her. I said, Shall I take, I know, I remember one time somebody asked me to do a, a job, a ghostwriting job, for a woman who believed that almost every kid is sexually abused by their parent. There was a period here where retrieved memory, it was called, and it was full of shit, and it ruined people's lives. Uh, uh, you know, nine times out of ten cases, there was no evidence whatsoever this being true. And they were being led, like a led witness by therapists. Well, one of them, you know, a PhD from Yale and everything, she wanted to write a book and she needed a ghostwriter. That's one way I made a living. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the money was good and that's all we had to live. Well, the two of us, we didn't have a lot to, uh, to live on. And... Uh, I said, Frankish, should I take this shot? And she said, no, hmm. you don't do that. And I said, but the money and this and what, blah, blah, blah. And she said, no, you don't do that. Isn't that obvious? And I said, well, let me give you the other side. She says, isn't it obvious? <laughs> and then I wouldn't do it. And so the, the joke around the house is she was my moral, uh, uh, moral compass. Mm-hmm, right. know, when mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do, because I could find it, you know, five different ways until Tuesday uh, uh, to do something that probably wasn't right and that would keep food on the table. And she'd say, no. And I said, well, tell me why. And she says, okay, I'll tell you why, because it's wrong. <laughs> okay. She, by the way, was not funny. Uh <laughs> And I met a lot of her Dutch friends. Not, not funny. <laughs> and, that is and, funny. Uh, you know, I have to explain every joke to him. Do you, uh, on that note, I mean, do you, do you have, you know, talking about making decisions in life, do you have, do you look back on your life with any, any kind of, uh, when you think about the past, or do you think a lot about the past, and do you think about it in terms of any kind of regrets, any kind of like major regrets, not like what you had for breakfast or something like that, but like major life decisions? Are there or are there things you just like that's that's uh, that's what I that's what I did at the time, and that's uh, that's who I was then, and how do you view it? How do you view the past it's a, if a, you view it? Very meaningful question to me. Uh, um... It reminds me of a joke, of course, and uh, Woody Allen was asked what his greatest regret was, and he says, that I wasn't somebody else. (laughs) 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 And a lot of my regrets, which haunt me, are the way I have treated women. And the way I've treated women is in the typical, uh, for my generation, male chauvinist pig way. I would do anything to get them in bed, including say, I love you. Uh, you're one in a million and, and anything, just because my dick wanted me to say that. And uh, um, and I find many of my friends, male friends, did the same thing. And we all seem to excuse it. It says, well, that's the way it was done in the 
fifties and sixties. Well, okay. well, Danny, I think th- I think that's very honest of you. And you know, what what does your day to day look like now? Do you do a lot of reading, or are you still writing? Uh, no, uh, I, I don't do a lot of reading or or writing. Uh, I could use some money. My big sort of goal in life is I kind of lived longer than than was prudent. Uh, you know, I'm going to run out of uh, money at some time because uh, I didn't think I'd live this long. And um, and I don't want to be a, a financial burden to my daughter. I have one child, my daughter. She's 44. And she has a, a partner, a guy named Daniel. Like, well, three out of four people are named Daniel. And, uh, and uh, it's a statistical fact, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just don't. I don't want a burden with that. That would that would make me so sad. Um, so you have to write another bestseller. <laughs> no, well, I have a, a few books that are um, optioned for film, and I'm hoping that you know that one of them, travels with Epicurus, uh, goes because it has. Um, it has some good people behind it. And I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to go on a trip. Uh, you know, I'm not very, uh, neither was my wife, very materialistic. You know, I don't own things. But I, I just don't want, I don't want to be a burden to my uh, daughter. So, you know, every once in a while, Tom and I, we're in daily contact. Uh, and he could use some, a little bit of money too. I mean, we, we, we I always j- joke with him and said the the two categories that are supposed to be guaranteed enough money to live are, um, uh, you, you know, uh, going to Harvard and being Jewish. You know, Jews good with money, <laughs> and so. Uh, you know, and I, Tom and I are probably in the bottom two percent of our class at Harvard in terms of income. You know, and uh, and the Jewish thing it just missed me. I don't know. I, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be prudent and make good investments. Well, I hate investing. I think that's my my wife did too. It seems making money with money uh, didn't seem like work. Uh, no, no product. Uh, you know, the capitalists will argue with you, and they say, "Oh, yeah, you're you're funding innovation stuff." No, you're not. You're just making money with money, uh, uh, and so I don't do it. I don't know what value my funny stuff is, but people think it's worth it to buy it. I must say, at this point, with my name on it or Tom's name on it, it has a little boost because uh, For sure. we're. we're we haven't. We're has-beens, but they, but people still remember our imprint. Oh, it's a it's a very um, it's a very stoic philosophy to not kind of worry about about money, let's say, and 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 uh, and accumulating wealth and things like that. But it also practically leads us to you know in in our society problems of if we don't plan for the future, if we don't. Um, if we if we just live in the present and think about our moment and and are mindful of the moment, it seems like there's this always this tension of, well, what about the future? How do how do we plan and make decisions in 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 planning for something unknown, obviously, but something that we we want to have a backup for in case you know we get injured, we we get sick or or, or whatever. So it's I, I've always been curious, and I in 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 stoicism how people balance those ideas of the present versus the future how do you how do you think well, that's about interesting the you, versus the future yeah it's a very interesting question it gets more complicated when uh when it includes other people like uh yeah your mate and maybe do you either of you have children no uh no not not yet no because that also you know you think can i just live for the present and be you know, and try to be existentially true and 
an uneducated painter from England who was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, he was self-educated, you know, autodidact, read philosophy, poetry, everything. And he was a painter, and he was a hunchback. And and he, you know, I always say that I, I learned more in, in one year of having dinner with the Anthony Kingsmill than I did with the four years of Harvard, because he questioned everything. Huh. Uh, and, uh, yeah. It was a big year for me. What a beautiful time, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just beautiful, you know. And I I, I talk about it in Travels with Epicurus. Uh, that, yeah. And um, also it was cheap. Uh, you know, it was before the euro. This is the drachma. And all I had to do is I'd write a funny article for an American magazine, you know, some popular magazine, like... Uh, Saturday Evening Post, Ladies Home Journal, or something like that, be enough to live for six months on drachmas, yeah, uh -huh. and going out to dinner every day. Uh, so that was it. And these these kind of dinners, you know, like long, you know, long dinners, uh, you know, maybe ouzo wine, uh, sort of the Greek food. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to do is have you know kind of long dinners and enjoy maybe more of the Dionysian uh, side of things. But with uh, with all these people that you've met that kind of impressed you, do you did you get a sense that you were doing something, um, you know, you're talking about living in the, in the present now, but at that time, did you have a, did you have a sense of freedom? Did you have a sense of, was there periods of time where you weren't worried or where, where you were just immersed in the freedom and the joy and, did you feel like you had moments like that throughout throughout your life where there wasn't the worry, there wasn't the 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 existentialism necessarily? It's funny. I keep thinking about that. I mean, psychology and the psychology of oneself is such a dicey subject. It falls victim to what in philosophy they call it, Dr. Hawk, ergo, uh, it's, it's about you know the Aristotelian fallacy that because one thing comes before A becomes before B, A must be the cause of B. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not necessarily. There's a great joke we used to do that uh, um, uh, this woman in the suburbs of New Jersey steps out on her porch every morning and says, let this house be safe from tigers. Does this every morning. Finally, the neighbor uh, uh, comes out and he says, Lady, what is wrong with you? <laughs> We're in New Jersey. There aren't any tigers. And she said, See, it works. Nice. I don't know. I knew that I was disappointing my parents, and maybe I got a kick out of that. Uh, but once you know you're going to disappoint your parents just about anything you do, uh, you know, that I had multiple girlfriends. I mean, that was, I was a sinner. It was just, I was, I was not their proud, their proudest achievement. My brother was the, the prouder achievement. Although I must say he had a not very happy life, but uh, I, 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 it was liberating for me. I can't fail. I failed already. Hmm. Mm, that uh, that German uh, stewardess looks pretty good. Let's see what's cooking there. You know, or um, you know, what are they talking about at, at King's Mill's table there? You know. Uh, Leonard seems to be holding forth on something. You know? I was in heaven. I was in heaven. No rules. Nobody paying me. Uh, and uh, people were very good about money. I was making more money than a lot of the expats. Uh, so I, I paid for Anthony's, uh, you know, three dollar dinner every night. I didn't care. <laughs> you know, why do I care? Uh, if it, if it was good for him, 
but I didn't feel like I was being used. It was just the conditions in which we could have dinner. All right. And I missed him uh, after I left. Yeah. It was a big year. And then it became something when I got married. Uh, I would go there for the summers in my child's summer vacation. And they got to like it. But by then, it had already turned the corner where uh, the expatriates were kind of like a colony. And uh, you spent your time with them rather than with Greeks. Right. And um, that was nice, too, because they were interesting expatriates. But that, that wasn't the raw experience that I had in 1969, I guess. I never learned how to speak Greek, just, you know, where's an ashtray and that kind of stuff. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, Danny, this I, this has been a fascinating conversation. That's, I mean, reading your books, it is it is like kind of living through a little bit of, of your past and uh, uh, going through that same kind of thinking and the pace that you had in Greece and, and uh, other places. So thank you for writing and talking to us you're very easy and smart to talk to I've, i always feel like on something like this that i should end uh with a, a joke by all means and um and this one i don't know it turns out that a lot of jokes that i think are jewish were uh actually persian before they were jewish like this there's a thing uh, Epstein's fart turns out to be originally from the Arabian Nights, if you can believe it. Okay. And it's a classic Jewish joke. Hundreds of years before it was in, in uh, I guess, Arabic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, uh, no, so I won't tell that one, but I'll tell one of my favorites. <laughs> okay. So it's in an old shtetl in Poland, and one guy is walking down the street comes up to another guy, he says, Moisha, Pippik, what happened to you? You used to be so tall. Now you're a little shrimp of a man. You used to be bald. Now you got a full head of curly hair. He says, you used to have a hairy chest. Now you have practically no chest at all. He says, what happened to you, Moisha Pippik? He says, my name is not Moisha Pippik. It's Sidney Goldfarb. And he says, oh, so you changed your name too. <laughs> uh, Danny, I mean, honestly, this is a great pleasure for me. I, I've really enjoyed your reading. Um, I, I'm so happy to be able to share this moment with you and with Airfan. And, um, you know, we, we are inspired by what you do and, and how you lived and, um, you know, your, your books really made me think about slowing down earlier and, and just trying to embrace embrace time as it comes. And uh, I really appreciate you for that. So uh, honestly, from my heart, thank you so much for, for being who you are and for, um, you know, living the life you have, because it's uh, it's giving me a lot of joy. And uh, this this was a great pleasure for, for, for us to speak to you. You're very kind. I'm very moved. Thank you. I wish you good lives. And then now I'll do my corner response, which I feel. And, and, and that is, yeah, do, relish it all. Do try to try to appreciate it. Uh, and try not to be neurotic. That's a lot of luck with that. But, uh, uh, you know, and... Uh, yeah, it's a good thing. You know, did I t tell you? I put it in one of my books because uh, it was one of those standout moments, and that was on my uh, father-in-law's deathbed. He was he had um, incurable lung cancer and painful, yeah. and in Holland you're permitted to have a physician-assisted uh, suicide. Right. And he opted for that. His wife didn't want him, but the rest of us respected, you know, that that's only an individual's choice. Yeah. And then he had audiences with all the survivors. 
and individually. And I came into his bedroom, and he was listening to jazz. I remember he was listening to Miles Davis, one of my favorites, too. Mm-hmm. We listened for a while, and then he said, you know what, Danny? It was a privilege to have lived. And yeah. I burst into tears. I'm going to burst into tears now. To think of, you know, to think of, you know, of all the bouncing around of the universe uh, that you got a lifetime. You got 70 years. Uh, uh, it's a privilege. It really is. Yeah. Well said. Uh, Danny, thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate well, I, it. I, I hope think you have you, a great day. I think you guys, I think you're onto something for yourself, so I'm glad. Thank you. Appreciate it. it means a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Take have care. a nice day. Okay. Bye-bye.